I wanted to today move a little bit away <clears throat> from being strictly doctrinal, which uh, I believe that we never used to be, and then we completely became, and so now, <laughs> you know, um, I wanted to actually talk to you more pastorally in the sense that I wanted to talk about three different life-giving principles, three different life-giving principles for you and me, for us as a family, and for you as an indi individual family. But when you turn on the TV, you are offered an, or, uh, um, an array of emotions to have. Nobody turns on the internet without leaving it laughing because they page through Babylon B, or they leave angry because they went to the news, or they, you know, whatever happens, whenever you go, almost anywhere, it has an impact upon you. So how do we as a people of God rise above the fray of life, and instead of being pushed around, whether it be emotionally or in our flesh or in our minds, in our positions or in our standards, how can we, in fact, hunker down, rise above the smoke, above the noise, and command our minds, command our emotion, command our desire, command our flesh, and command our steps instead of being driven by the world. And I believe that we do so by finding scriptural anchors that we can hold on to. Oftentimes, you have to hold on to a scriptural anchor that is contrary to the way your emotions are driving you. You have to hunker down because you cannot be tossed to and fro by every single wind doctrine that comes by. You have to be able to hold on and not be ever learning and never arriving. Do you know that Paul actually warns people about that? And he says, you can't be ever learning and never actually coming to the knowledge of truth. Uh, at some point, you have to draw a line. You have to say, this is where I stand. You have to put the stake in the ground and you say, this is what I see in scriptures. And, and of course, you're going to grow and you're going to grow up. But God's not, God doesn't want you to be tossed to and fro consistently. Not by the world, not by the flesh, not by the demonic, and not by doctrines of demons either. And so what we have to do is we have to find scriptural anchors that we can uh, hold on to. And today what I would like to do is I'd like to make them understandable, uh, take some scriptural principles and make them really practical so that we can give feet to these thoughts that God gives us in His Word. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at three of those anchors by asking, what makes life profitable? What is it that makes our lives profitable? The world is throwing at you different ways to assess whether you are profitable or not. But the Bible tells us exactly what will make our life profitable. Secondly, we want to look at what makes life necessary. Why even are you here? And then thirdly, what brings stability? How many of you feel like since for the last couple of years, you're just like wondering when is, 
But we're not things going to be panning out and become stable again somehow, right? <laughs> but our lives can be stable. So the first is what makes life profitable? And I want to argue for the fact that it's contentment that makes your life profitable. That you will never find your life to actually have profited until you are content. <clears throat> Many are deeply dissatisfied with the life that they have. People will go to extremes just to attain a different life. They will work themselves into the ground just so that they can earn a, cert a certain amount, which is a little bit more than what they currently do. They will neglect their marriage, their family, their children, so that they can reach specific career goals and attain certain levels in life. You know, that corporate ladder people like to call it. They will divorce their life partner so that they can have another one, attempt a more possibly fun a more functional marriage. <laughs> and they will go deep into debt so that they can experience things they cannot afford. Why? Because people aren't content. They're simply not content with the life that they have. Their station is never enough. Their station in life. So what does contentment look like? Well, contentment comes from an inward attitude, an inward attitude. Many philosophers, authors, and religious leaders have identified the importance of contentment. Epicurus, a philosopher of the third century, said, and he's not Christian, but he said, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. One of the sayings of the Jewish rabbis in the first century was, who is rich? He that is contented with his lot, he's rich. He's he who is content with his lot. Now, if you had to rate your own contentment today, between 1 and 10, 1 being not content, 10 being you're totally content, where would you rate yourself? Now, I want you to shout out the number. No, I'm kidding. Don't shout it out. <laughs> But I want you to come up with a number right now. If you, where is your level of contentment? One being very low, ten being totally content. I want to read to you 1 Timothy 6 verse 3. It says, through 11, it says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. Let me just read that again. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever noticed sometimes we can get into questions ultimately that need, lead nowhere? means nothing. I love how Job asked the question. After him and his friends were like arguing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth about God. And Job came to the point, he says, God, can God create a rock so big that he cannot move it? I mean, it doesn't matter how you answer the question. You make God impossible. You know, like, oh, no, he cannot create a rock so big that he cannot move it. Or, yes, he can create a rock so big that he himself cannot even move it. So you, you can't answer that question, can you? And here he says, sometimes people go down those rabbit trails and they ask dumb questions 
only because we're trying to fit an all-powerful, omniscient God into our little brains. The answer is yes and yes. Well, that's not possible. Yes, it is. <laughs> and so people sometimes has this morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive envy, arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men and depraved mind and depri deprived of truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of gain, great gain when accompanied by contentment. Godliness is, in fact, a means of gain, great gain, when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with ease we shall be content. I just want to pause there for a second. Relative poverty is, in fact, a thing. Just because somebody has less than somebody else doesn't mean they're poor, right? Here we see that the standard is, if we have food and covering with ease, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Pierced themselves with many griefs. <clears throat> but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You see, family Christianity does not require that a person choose poverty over wealth. The Bible does not require that you choose poverty over wealth. There is no special virtue in being poor. Have you noticed the poor bails no one out? Have you noticed? The poor doesn't bail anybody out. There is no special virtue in being poor or in having a constant struggle to make ends meet. That's not what makes you godly. But Christianity does require these two things, that you realize things lack the power to bring contentment. Things lack the power to bring contentment. That is what the Scriptures want us to hold on and to understand. And secondly, we have to, the, the Bible requires that we have a central focus on, that we have a central focus on things that are permanent, things that are eternal, and not those that are temporal. So let's continue drilling down just for a moment to find what contentment really is because I really believe that because of this whole idea um, of discontentment is the air that we breathe here in the West. Nobody's happy. Nobody's satisfied. Nobody's content with where they are. They're all screaming at each other because of who they are, not because of who the other person is. And we, of all people, need to learn what it means to be content. And don't think a person is going to grow up to be content. They have to grow. The older a person grows, uh, the older I become, the more difficult it becomes for me to change things, right? And so we have to learn to be content as soon as we possibly can. 
Contentment is finding joy in what God has already given you. Can you trust Him? Can you trust Him that He has known best? He, ha he knows what's best for you, when, where, and with who? Can you trust Him? Now, that doesn't mean you have to make dumb decisions because there's a price to be paid on that too. But if God puts two people before you, one is God-fearing and another one is tempting, well, <clears throat> God did give you somebody, didn't He? <laughs> but so did the devil. <laughs> he also sends people into your life. The opposite of contentment is greed, and greed is, that is the thing that destroys your capacity to enjoy what God has already given you. Think about this for a moment. Greed destroys the capacity of enjoying what God has already given you. It's talk about relationships. Talk about money. Talk about anything. Greed destroys your ability to enjoy what God has already given you. So contentment is a Christian grace that grows over time, does not come quickly or easy or naturally. Naturally, we are bent toward discontentment. We are bent towards greed. We are bent towards covetousness. We, we have a bend towards selfishness. Why? Because of our fallen natures. But contentment can grow in us. Paul says in Philippians 4.12, I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I have learned the secret of being content. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content. In every circumstance. Hungry, plenty, poor. I've learned to be content. So how did Paul learn this? How did Paul learn this? <clears throat> how can you, like him, find joy in what God has given you, especially when it's less than you had before? Jeremiah Burroughs is a, is a Puritan of old. And he responded with great wisdom, and he said, and I quote, A Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. Contentment does not come by adding to what you have, but by subtracting from what you desire. The world says that you need to find contentment when you, the world says you will find contentment when you possess, when your possessions rise to meet the level of your desires. The Christian has another way of contentment, and that is he can bring his desires down to his possessions. I really love that quote. <laughs> I messed it up here at the end. Let me read that again. The world says that you will find contentment when your possessions rise to the level of your desires. The Christian has another way to contentment. That is, he can bring his desires down to his possessions. And the reason the Christian can bring his desires down to his possessions is because his desire is for God and not the things that God can provide. He desires God, not the gifts that come from his hand. In Hebrews 13, 5, it says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you 
nor will I ever forsake you. Can we learn to be content with what we have? And are we free from the love of money? The Christian whose value is heavenly and not earthly is content in this world. And this is true wealth. Godliness with contentment. Not just godliness. You've seen many godly people completely discontent. But godliness with contentment. That is true wealth. But for us to just pursue contentment without godliness also is not, is not true wealth. It's godliness and contentment. And that is my encouragement to you in regards to the very first issue as to what makes life profitable. The person who's content, he is just so wealthy <laughs> and thankful for what he has. Number two, what makes life necessary? What makes life necessary? And it's relationships. It's relationships. Philippians 1 verse 21, the Apostle Paul makes it really clear here. He says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard pressed from both directions having the desire to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, is necessary for you. Paul was saying to the church, the re it's better for me to stay for your sake, but it's way much better for me personally if I would just go. And what made him necessary on the earth at that time was them. It was necessary for him to stay because of relationships. Convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. It's an amazing dichotomy this man was in. Streets of gold. Some prideful person given to sin inside of his church that keeps on criticizing him. <laughs> Yet, he has to stay for this person. <laughs> Relationship. What makes life necessary? That's what makes life necessary. And I think, you know, one of the, we don't really think things through, do, do we? We allow people to uh, control us instead of us allowing God to use us. Let me just uh, put it in this term, in these terms. Um, I remember walking into a CEO's office and I was, I had a meeting with him, and just as I sat down, one of his employees runs through the door and says, hey, by the way, ba 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 ba, and he just throws things at this guy. And um, the guy goes, okay, thank you, you can go. The guy, one of his employees that, you know, walked back out, closed the door, and I could see it just really rubbed this guy up the wrong way, right? And he said this, he said, uh, I refuse 
I refuse for somebody else to control how I feel today. Because <laughs> that's really what happens. But what we do is we allow the world to, to push us around emotionally all the time, to control us. And we allow the, the flesh to control our desires. And we allow relationships to suck every bit of joy out of the room. We have to become bigger than that. Look at Paul. He was willing to say, hey, I'm going to have to stay because evidently you need me to. (laughs) It wasn't because they were all doing fantastic. It was because they weren't. Are you with me? Sometimes, almost every time, you stay in relationships not because it benefits you, it's because evidently I have to. Evidently, um, you know, I'm going to have to take it on the chin in order just to stay in this relationship. But we discard relationships way too quickly. You know why? Because it's never about them. It's always about, well, you know what? I'm done with them because of how they made me feel. And because of what I, know, I cannot get out of them. You know, I'm amazed. I'm just really amazed, shocked, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's actually laughable. I mean, how much like a congregation can do for one person, and then the moment there's something they don't like, they're gone. It's an amazing thing. It's shocking. But it's revealing. It's, it's, it's revealing about not what it always seemed true about that person, but what's really true about that person. You know somebody who's completely short-sighted? Who's an absolute fool? Who can have many godly relationships and over one offense go, I'm done with all of y'all. I'm done. That is shocking. <laughs> you know, haven't you met enough people who have grown old all by themselves and have nobody? Haven't you seen too many of those? Because many people have an IQ, intelligence quotient, but they don't have an, R- an RQ, a relational quotient. They have no capacity to build relationships. And if they do, it's always on their terms. And if they do, it's always for their benefit. They have no capacity for relationships. If people don't reach out to them, they will always be, they'll always have no one. And the second thing is, and, uh, you know, I make, no, I make no apology for this. None. Because I'm not interested in you ending, uh, ending up alone. How would you like to be the most right, lonely person in the whole world? I'm right! Yeah, but you have no one. Yeah, I know. It's their fault! <laughs> I make no apology for it because we have to grow up. You know, the first thing is some people have zero capacity for relationships because it's always about them. Secondly, when a person does get into a relationship, they have no longevity. And that's not who God has called us to be. Look at this man. Look at him. Instead of the streets of gold, he chooses what? I better stay. (laughs) You guys need me. And do you have relationships you can say that of? 
Not that you had the opportunity of going to heaven, but you had the opportunity of walking away, but you didn't. Because you knew it would be better for them had you, would you stay. Is this making sense to you all? It's really, really quiet here. <laughs> and there's something I found about public praise. Watch out when people praise you publicly. Watch out. We have to grow up. Family, we can't, we can't be... Uh, um, if you want God to use you, Trust me, it's because you stayed in a relationship. I have this friend on Facebook, which doesn't mean, which doesn't mean he's a friend necessarily, right? <laughs> and I'm just amazed at how this guy, I have, we, have, we have common friendships. As a matter of fact, we have a common entrance into, into a very large group of people. And... We were both very connected to that large group of people in South Africa. And so what he went and did is he just went in there and he slaughtered them all. I mean, he just, he just slaughtered all of them. And then he says to me, hey, um, would you do a podcast with me? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> very, very important for you to know that, look, you have a reputation, you know that, right? Every one of us have a reputation of our own making. And if your reputation is that there's not one person that can stay in a relationship with you, not your family and not your church family, if that's true about you, whew, tough times ahead. Tough times ahead. We have to learn to turn the other cheek. We have to learn to walk an extra mile. We have to learn to take our only jacket off of our backs and give it to somebody else. We have to learn to say, all right, thank you, God, for that opportunity. In Paul's case, streets of gold. But, you know, Lord, I want to stay responsible. Because there's no meaning in life if, you're not, if you don't have a responsibility. The person with zero responsibility has no meaning to this world and in this life. It's the person with a huge amount. Of, the more people rely upon you, the more meaningful your life becomes. Parenting is a meaningful thing. Why? And so, public praise with zero loyalty means nothing. Nothing. On the contrary, it reveals the person never meant what they ever said. So what makes life necessary is the fact that you have relationships. Think through them because you aren't growing younger. Shoot roots, because without roots, you don't have fruits. Number three, I didn't mean for this to be heavy. <laughs> you may smile, that's okay. I want, I want to just, there's so much I want to say about relationships, but I, want to, I don't want to do a whole sermon on relationships, but really... Go, go to Psalms, go to Proverbs. The amount of wisdom, warnings, and directives given to us regarding relationships, it's incredible. It's everywhere. 
When God wants to bless you, He sends you somebody. When Satan wants to destroy you, He sends you somebody. All right? Discernment matters. Influence matters. If you're on the receiving end, it's got to be somebody who fears the Lord more than you. If you are on the giving end, it's because you're influencing somebody. And if they don't fear the Lord as much as you do, watch out. doesn't mean you're not in a relationship with them. You just have to be in the right relationship with them. One of the goals, let me move to the next. Number three, what brings stability? What brings stability? So we talked about what makes your life profitable. It's not just being godly, but it's godliness with contentment. Are you, are you thankful for the station in life? Are you okay with where God called you in marriage, in parenting, on the job right now? Are you, can you be grateful for what you do have instead of always raging over what you do not have? Number two, what makes life necessary? Relationships. Do you have a capacity for relationships in your life? The question. God is going to use you in a great way. Say to the guy, yeah, but not if you just slaughtered like 9,000 people on Facebook. Um, now nobody wants to hear you out. Now you want me to be on there with you. <laughs> If you can shut, if you can shut ten thousand doors with with two posts, <laughs> you're a special sort of person. <clears throat> In nothing that I said there have I encouraged have I encouraged um, compromise. You don't compromise. God in order to keep a relationship. That's not what I'm saying at all. On the contrary, you cannot compromise your way into a healthy relationship. Did you know that? You cannot compromise your, your way into being fruitful. But if you have discretion, you can stay in a relationship and hold fast to what God has called you to do in that relationship. And now number three, what brings stability? is keeping your biblically informed conscience clear. Keeping your biblically informed conscience clear. What is the conscience? Hebrews, or the Hebrew word for conscience is the word L-E-B, which is really the word heart. That's, that your conscience is part of your heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, his conscience, in Exodus 8 verse 15. It talks about the upright heart in Psalm 7 verse 10. It talks about a clean heart in Psalm 51.10. It talks about guarding your heart in Proverbs 4.23. So what is the purpose of conscience? J.I. Packer says, An educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It's God's monitor, internal monitor in your life. That's your conscience. I'm raising my son, doing what I can to educate his conscience because when I'm not there, his conscience is. That means an educated, seared, or uneducated, excuse me, an uneducated, seared conscience is Satan's playbook. If an educated conscience is God's monitor, monitor 
An uneducated conscience is Satan's playbook. The conscience is not perfect. It can make mistakes. I'll give you an example. Have you ever turned a page in your Bible and you ripped it? You went, oh! <laughs> that is your uneducated conscience accusing you. It's like when you drop your Bible. <gasps> it's your uneducated conscience accusing you. That conscience is acting out of religious truth and not biblical truth. Nowhere in the Bible says if you accidentally rip a page, you ought to be convicted. <laughs> Nowhere does the Bible say if you accidentally drop this, you have to say a certain amount of prayers. There's no such thing. And so that was my New Year's resolution in 2022, Tina and mine, that we will make sure that we live with with uh, an educated conscience and not with a religious conscience. Stop feeling so tormented over things. The Bible does, there's no prohibition in. Uh, the Bible doesn't give you a prohibition. It doesn't say you're not allowed to do this. Stop feeling bad over stuff that is traditional or religious. And stop not feeling guilty over stuff the Bible does tell you to do and you're not doing. <laughs> you, you following what I'm saying? And so the world wants you to swap those things around. Wants you to feel bad about stuff. Oh my goodness. You know, the world is ending in 14 years and you asking me where we're going to get the money from? <laughs> you know, are you following what I'm saying? I mean, people are so bothered about the fact that the world is going to end in 14 years because of climate change. They got their consciences all wrapped up in stuff. And then... When you come to biblical standards, they have none, and they feel nothing for it. But you, not so. Your conscience is tied to Scriptures. And you are completely free to live this life within the framework of Scriptures. Completely free. Only use wisdom. You see, the conscience, I love how MacArthur explained it. The conscience is, in fact, not a light. It doesn't produce light. It's a skylight. It lets light through. And so it doesn't tell you what's right and wrong until it's been exposed to what's right and wrong. So your conscience, whatever the highest truth is that you've been exposed to, that truth shines through that skylight, convicts you, holds you accountable, or excuses you. You're allowed to do this because that truth keeps shining into you. That's how the conscience is formed. It is formed by the truth that it's been exposed to. It accuses us or defends us based on the truth that it's been exposed to. And that's why there are those who, in certain countries who um, will kill you if you dishonor their God's name. And guess what? Their conscience will defend their actions because they see truth in the, in the same light as those who taught them. That's why others would have sleepless nights if they accidentally hit a cow on their, with their car <laughs> because, you know, their conscience has been trained to accept a cow as being holy. 
that's truth to them. That's the light that, that, that's come through their skylight. Accuses them or excuses them. Their conscience has been misinformed. To those of you who know the Scriptures, your conscience is trained in scriptural truth, in biblical truth, and your conscience is constantly drawing you to do the Word, and it accuses you every single time you break a verse, excuses you when you find no prohibition for it. So you have to live with your conscience. Your conscience will accuse you or defend you based on what you know. The scriptures say. So what are the different conditions a conscience can have? Listen to this. It's so interesting. Your conscience can be defiled. You can have a defiled conscience, 1 Corinthians 8, 7. You can have a calloused conscience, 1 Corinthians 8, 10. You can have a wounded conscience, 1 Corinthians 8, 12. You can have a weak conscience, 1 Corinthians 8, 12. You can have a seared conscience, 1 Timothy 4.2. You can have an evil conscience, Hebrews 10.22. You can have a clear conscience, 1 Timothy 3.9. And so my conclusion here for us, family, is that all three our enemies are attempting to feed and inform our consciences with their own truth. The world is attempting to feed and inform your conscience, your spouse's conscience, your children's conscience, and this church's conscience with its own truth. What's the world's truth? Humanism. The flesh is attempting to inform and educate your conscience all day long. In what way? With the idea of lust, just wanting more and more and more, more pleasure, more pleasure, more pleasure, more pleasure, more entertainment, more entertainment. The demonic is attempting to inform your conscience. By feeding you doubt, did God say you should not eat from that? Did He really say that? So the world, the flesh, and the devil is constantly attempting to inform your conscience. That's why we have to stay in the Word every day. You have to inform your own conscience with the truth of Scripture. And then allow your conscience to guide you through that day. Educate your conscience daily. Refuse to violate your conscience and sear it. Ref refuse to have a weak, a wounded, a calloused, and a defiled conscience. Refuse to have a seared and an evil conscience, but live with a clear conscience knowing I'm living within the parameters of these scriptures. Refuse to sear it. Because it is God's means by which He leads you and guides you, by which He accuses you and excuses you. It is the way by which God comforts you, convicts you, or gives you confidence. Have you, have you ever had a really burdened conscience? When your conscience, God takes your conscience and He puts it in an oven? Has, who has this been true to? You have experienced this. You just needed to go and make right. Because your conscience was absolutely, <laughs> can't sleep having anxiety attacks, nervous breakdowns. <laughs> That's a good thing. That is God putting His finger on you. And you go, I know I can't get away. I can get away with this. Nobody, nobody knows. <sighs> but there He is. God knows. And I need to go make right.
I'll end with this. Martin Luther, he stood in front of his accusers and he was tormented by the idea of going against his conscience. He could have burnt all his books, could have recanted. You know what he did? You know what he did recant from? <laughs> he, say, he did say, I have said some things really coarsely and he, he said things in ways that was, a that was very rough. But the truth that he said, he didn't recant from. He's, and he, he was comforted by the fact that he would choose according to his biblically informed conscience, not according to his fears. Let's pray. Father, today, I pray that you help us, Lord. That we will take serious. You have called us to live with contentment. Lord, I pray that you work in our hearts and you help us grow in contentment. This is the life you have given us. This is the time in which you chose us to live. This is the family we were birthed into. And Lord, I pray that you teach us to be content. Teach us to defer to one another. To take a step back. Do not want to be right. Father God, I pray that your gospel has its work within us. That we can learn how to deal with relationships. You showed us in Colossians that when relationships are difficult, you said, let the peace of God rule our hearts in that situation. Your peace rules me in difficult relationships. Not their immaturity, not their stubbornness, but your peace. Help us, Father, be the bigger, bigger person in every situation. Help us live with forgiveness, kindness, gentleness, mercy, and understanding toward others. Help us build, Father. Help us build relationally. And then, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you help us as we inform our consciences of your truth. There's no such thing as each person having their own truth. There's one truth. Everything else is a lie. And we grab onto your truth, Father, and we allow our consciences to be informed, educated, constructed with your truth. And Lord, that we will live free within those parameters in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you get something?